presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Are we doing the best job we can in pediatric palliative care? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Stefan Friedrichstorf. Dr. Friedrichstorf is the Medical Director, Pain and Palliative Care Program at Children's Hospital and Clinics of Minnesota. Thank you very much, Doctor, for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show, Maurice. Can you tell me, what are the factors initially that got your institution to develop this kind of program? I think it first started more than 20 years ago in 1987 when our home prep program here at the Children's Hospital basically um, found that they were caring for children who were at end of life. And there was simply not a system in place at all to take care of those kids. So just by default and by compassion of a few nurses, basically, over the years, they started to build an amazing program. And when I was asked three years ago to come over from, from Australia to become medical director, I found an amazing, fabulous, groovy team who has been doing that for many years and brought this up from scratch. And so it was energy, compassion, um, and just an accident. Your program has many facets. Could you explain some of them to us? Well, we basically have four major pieces. The pain and palliative care program, we are caring for children in acute pain, in chronic pain, in palliative care, and we do a large aspect of education. So acute pain, of course, is quite easy. We're caring for children postoperatively and found that managing the symptoms basically is a good combination of um, good pharmacology and good non-pharmacology. Chronic pain is slightly different. We are caring for children who may have migraine, headaches, tension headaches, chronic abdominal pain, complex regional pain syndrome. So, and often those children have missed many weeks or even months of school. And we found that seeing those kids in an interdisciplinary pain clinic, so meaning those families who usually had a multi-million dollar workup, they actually see the whole team at the same time in the same room seems to be particularly helpful. Who makes up your team? Well, it's, usually it's five people in the, in the room. So they have a clinical nurse um, coordinator. There's a clinical psychologist. We have um, a specially trained physical therapist. And we have a social worker who also is a family therapist. And then there's myself or my colleagues, so a specially trained pediatrician in pain. And we usually do a, a very extensive workup with a family and an intake. And at the very end, then make suggestions and tailor that upon the needs of that family. Well, you know, pediatrics is no different than adult medicine, you try to get your patient home. So does your team follow the patient after he or she leaves the hospital and you try to get them back into school in particular? And with children, you certainly want to keep their lives as normal as possible. We absolutely do. So we do not only assess those children or the teenagers, we also provide follow-up. So a typical schedule could mean that initially a child may need physical therapy once or twice a week because they're low in endurance or may have pain in different aspects of their body. Um, they're often required to be seen by our pain psychologist uh, once a week. And on the one hand, to learn about non-pharmacological integrative treatment modalities such as biofeedback or hypnosis or progressive muscle relaxation, but also about acknowledging the impact of stress and anxiety on, on the degree of pain. And then, they, of course, they see me, and, and um, often families may have not worked out secondary gain or may have become quite dysfunctional over many weeks, months, or years of chronic pain in the family. And this is where our social worker and family therapist comes in. 
But you bring up the right point. It's absolutely important to get those kids back to school full-time, and that's one of our main goals. So basically, we'd like to see those kids after school. The children that you're seeing are indeed fortunate. They're getting this team approach. What do you do with so many children across the United States that don't have this expertise available? Or do they? Do you have a training program in place? And are people becoming more involved in pediatric palliative care? Well, that, of course, is a huge problem currently at the moment because, unfortunately, this is true for both acute pain, chronic pain, and palliative care, that it's not part of the curriculum in medical school, in residency training, or in postgraduate training. So there are a few centers of excellence spread out through the United States, but the vast majority of children in the U.S. still do not have access to specifically trained experts in pediatric pain or palliative care. And one of the topics, which is very dear to my heart and the heart of my colleagues who are doing this, is really making sure that we improving the training, and we make sure that this, which is very much at the bottom of the heart of the core of pediatrics, to make sure that everyone who's, who's a clinician becomes an expert in pain and part of care. So you're saying you don't have to be a specialist the way you are, but part of the general pediatric practice and residency program will include this type of program? Correct. I see. And then you also mentioned uh, the integrated non-pharmacological aspects. Could you touch on those a minute? Because most of us in palliative care, in adult practice, I don't think really spend as much time with TENS units and biofeedback and hypnosis even, the way you're describing it. Well, we basically learned over the time that we have to be extremely good at two things. Number one, of course, we have to be very good at our drugs. So if we notice how nociception, the first neuron going all the way up to the spinal cord, um, crossing over the second neuron, the spinothalamic tract, then we can, of course, try to work with non-opioids, with opioids using uh, morphine, fentanyl, hydromorphone, or even methadone, sometimes adding adjuvant medications such as gabapentin, which is neurontin, or pregabalin, lyrica, using um, ketamine, using sometimes low-dose propofol. So often we have to use an amazing amount of opioids and other analgesic drugs in, in kids. However, similar to adult medicine, we found that to provide the very best pain and symptom management, we always must, in the 21st century, combine pharmacology with integrative non-pharmacological treatment modalities. Sometimes we don't have a clue how they're working, but often we learned that they are actually stimulating descending inhibiting pathways. So methods such as self-hypnosis, something I'm trained in, or methods like progressive muscle relaxation or biofeedback, which many of my team members are, are trained in, we found to be particularly helpful in managing pain and symptoms, both for our acute or chronic pain kids or for our children in palliative care. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stefan Friedrichsdorf, who is the Medical Director, Pain and Palliative Care Program at Children's Hospital and Clinics of Minnesota, and we're discussing attempts to control the symptoms and pain of children who not only have terminal disease, but also have life-limiting disease. And I want to turn to that, reading about your program. I notice it deals with life-limiting diseases as well as terminal diseases. Could you tell me the various spectrums of diseases that your particular program would direct its attention to? In the beginning of the 21st century, many people think that people just don't die. Unfortunately, more than 50,000 children actually die in the United States each year. And children with life-limiting or terminal conditions and um, neonates make up more than 30,000 of those per year. So it's actually a quite huge number. So the whole spectrum 
as opposed to adult medicine, is that although the largest group of kids do have cancer, about two-thirds of the children actually have non-malignant conditions. So we are looking after a lot of neonates who may have genetic abnormalities or severe birth asphyxia. And we also see lots of children with progressive metabolic or neurodegenerative conditions, such as myotidiochondropathies, leukodystrophies, leukogen um, starch disease, and children with muscular dystrophy, such as spinal muscular atrophy, type 1, 2, or 3, Duchenne's dystrophy, and a lot of children with congenital cardiovascular conditions. For instance, um, just today saw a child with a left hypoplastic heart syndrome. You touched on the neonates, and is this a reflection of what's going on across the United States when it comes to treating pain in neonates as well as older and adolescent children? I think it still reflects the lack of training in state-of-the-art pharmacological and non-pharmacological pain management and also the anxiety of treating small children. The little data we have shows that if you are an adult going to an adult hospital, you are likely to get two to three times as much pain drugs per kilogram body weight than a child. And the smaller a child is, the less likely it is that he or she will actually receive adequate pain management. So the United States, as most Western countries, really have a long way to go to provide excellent pain management because we can basically promise a family that your child does not have to suffer from medium or severe pain if we're using adequate methods. We can't leave the subject without saying, who's paying for all of this? There has been a Medicare Hospice Act going back to the 1980s, and certainly we see it over and over again. They keep changing their rules, at least on who can be eligible for hospice care, at least in the adult population. How does this play out for the pediatric group? It's still a disaster. I only arrived in this country three years ago, and it may not come as a surprise to you that I couldn't help noticing that coverage is just a disaster. So what we have learned is that, on the one hand, procedures for which there's evidently zero evidence that they actually benefit the patient or even cause harm are easily covered by health insurance. Whereas we found that effective or cost-saving modalities, meaning seeing children in a multidisciplinary pain clinic or providing palliative care, that those services really struggle to stay alive. So right at this time, those few large palliative care services we have in the United States, most of them require donations up to about one-third or 50% of the services because the current payer system just simply does not reflect the necessity of to pay this fully. No matter how long you practice medicine, the death of a child seems so, so unnatural and so difficult both for the caregiver and the family to deal with. Do you find it harder to get families to consider palliative care when the patient is a pediatric patient? It very much depends on the family. We often, a family really does not want to give up. And there's a a very large misconception out there among families and even among colleagues and other physicians who believe that introducing palliative care means to give up. There's nothing else we can do. And we are basically saying the opposite is true. There's always an awful lot we can do. And introducing palliative care actually doesn't mean to give up. Because very often, as opposed to adult medicine, in palliative care, we just simply don't know what's going to happen to this child. We may see children who get cured by chemotherapy or by a bone marrow transplant, for instance, or a liver transplant. So they just graduate from our program. Or we have lots of children who have been told that they, after extubation, this child may die in the next few hours. And now, alas, 10 years later, this child is still alive. So very often, what we seem to predict as physicians may just not come true. So by talking to the families, we try to prepare them from everything and saying, introducing us does not mean you're giving up. Your job as a family means you wait for the miracle. You do everything possible to make sure that your 
child can live as long and as happy as possible. We, as a pain and palliative care service, are here to basically provide the very best pain and symptom management. And if the worst were to happen, if your child is going to die, we can promise you, your child will not suffer. Today, we've been talking to Dr. Stefan Fredericksdorf, the medical director of the pain and palliative care program at the hospital and clinics of Minnesota. We've been discussing the need to not forget our smallest patients. We have within our ability to help them with their pain and suffering, either at a terminal or life-limiting disease. For those of you who in the middle of the night might need help, please call Dr. Fredericksdorf at 612-813-6450. Again, I want to thank him for being our guest. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.